Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Manly Beasley said one time, a glimpse of Jesus will save you, but a gaze of Jesus will sanctify you. I don't know about you, but there are some times in my life when I just wish I had more time to gaze at Jesus. I get caught up in so much religious stuff and so much church work and so much that comes under the category of my job that I don't spend the time with Him like I ought to. I don't think anybody ever dies and says, I wish I'd spent more time on my job. I think a lot of people die and say, I wish I'd spent more time getting to know Jesus, who I'm going to spend eternity with. I don't think anybody ever says, I wish I'd spent more time with the trivial. I think they wish they'd spent more time with the important. God, family, church, prioritizing their lives. We're going to look tonight at what had to been, not just physically, but in his heart, the mountaintop experience in the life of Jesus. As we go through the Gospel of Mark, we now find ourselves in chapter 9. Verse 1 of chapter 9 is really related to uh, the last part of chapter 8. Whoever did the chapter divisions wasn't doing a very good job the day he did that, and he let his pen slip and went one verse too far. He should have tied that in uh, to chapter 8, but he didn't do it. But we're going to pick up in verse 2. Let me just make a comment about verse 1. Verse 1 is often misunderstood. In fact, it is used by some to say, well, it's obvious that Jesus didn't know everything because he made a prophecy and a prediction that did not come true when he said, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, if I can just simplify that as much as possible, I will say simply this. That verse doesn't stand alone. It stands within the context of the transfiguration. It stands within the context of the fact that there would be, within a half century, those disciples who would go from Jerusalem to Rome. They would walk down roads that had been set aside for armies to march and capture kingdoms, but they would be used by the army of God to capture a world for Jesus Christ. And he was giving a foretaste of the experience that Peter, James, and John were about to have on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so I want you to begin reading with me in verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. I think that's a great statement, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Well, that kills a clothes-washing business, doesn't it? Luke says it happened eight days later. Ah, so there you have it. There's an inconsistency in the Word of God. Well, I guess we throw it all out. No. You just think how they were thinking. Mark says six days. Luke says eight days. What do you say? If something happened a while back, you say, oh, it's about a week ago. Well, I can be six, or that can be eight. It can be seven. It can be five. Time flies when you're having fun. All they were saying was, 
about a week ago. About a week went by, and he took Peter, James, and John to the mountain. This happened on Mount Hermon, which is about 9,000 feet above sea level. It is in the area where Jesus was, not Tabor, but, but Mount Hermon, and it's uh, in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And he brings these three with him. I always find it interesting that in these significant moments in the life of Christ, he pulls aside Peter, James, and John. He did that with the raising of Jairus' daughter. He took them in. I think he took them into the raising and healing of Jairus' daughter because he wanted to teach them that he was the Savior. He did it again at the Garden of Gethsemane. I think there he wanted to teach them that he was the suffering Messiah. And now he takes them to the Mount of Transfiguration in between those two key events where he has shown that inner circle the fact that he is the Savior and the fact he's going to show them that he is the suffering Messiah, he wedges in between that the experience on a Mount of Transfiguration to say to them, I am also the sovereign king. I'm the one in charge. Now, there are three people that he takes there, Peter, James, and John. Three distinctly different characters in the life of Christ. Peter was the first messenger or missionary of the gospel. He was the great preacher at the time of Pentecost. James was the first martyr of the church. John was the great messenger to the church in the book of Revelation. And in Peter going out and preaching the gospel, and in James being the first martyr, and in John being the visionary or the messenger or the minister of the gospel, we find in all three of them that they were going to come to crisis events in their life where they needed to remember this moment because they were all, in a sense, forerunners. They were giving us a foretaste of things to come. Jesus knew they needed a little special encouragement that Peter was going to need something to come back on. In fact, he refers to it in one of his epistles. He talks about that experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. I've got a feeling that somehow the Holy Spirit brought that to mind when James was martyred. I think that was just a glimpse of what John saw on the Isle of Patmos. I don't know about you, but there are times, folks, when I need a mountaintop experience. I mean, there are just some days when I wonder why I can't have one. I mean, do you ever need a mountaintop experience? Do you, do you ever just need God to just come in an unusual way in your life and to bless you and to give you a sense of His presence and a sense of His power and His authority? Do you just need to be overwhelmed by the glory of God? Do you? Oh, good. I thought I was going to have to preach an evangelistic message for a while. I need those. And God knows that because of the frailty of my flesh, I need those. I think it's God's desire that we live a more leveled-out life, but we tend to do like this. We look like a roller coaster. We go up and we go down. We go up and we go down. And we long for the mountaintops. And it is only the mountaintops that give us the strength to survive the valleys. Well, I need mountaintops. I, if you study Scripture, almost every great event and almost every time the glory of God came, it was on a mountain. You see, I can go to the beach, and it just didn't do anything for me. Some people can go to the beach and see God. I go to the beach and see seaweed. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think God ever intended you to sweat to get to know Him. And you have to when you go to the beach. 
But I, I, I can, when I go to the mountains, there's something, and it's just in my psyche. I know there's nothing spiritual about this, but there's something that happens to me when I can get inside of mountains. When I can get just and see those things on the hillside, I begin to, my body begins to make a change, and my mind begins, I begin to relax, and I begin to get out of the mundane, and I quit being uptight, and I, I can get up there, and I can really get with God. Not that any particular mountain is any more special than others, but I personally think that Jesus will come back to Gatlinburg. <laughs> it's my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. I need those mountaintop experiences. And about once a year, I'll take off and I'll go spend several days up in the mountains just to try to get a sense of direction for that year and to try to see what it is that God would want me to preach on and the direction He would want me to take because I need those times away so that I can come back refreshed and renewed and ready. I worry about folks that don't ever think they need to get along, that never have times in their life when they set their face before God, when they don't have that experience or the desire that was wrapped up in those words of Jacob who said, I will not let you go until you bless me that there's not that longing in our heart until we hear no voice but God's voice and see no face but God's face and know Him in all that He is and all that He wants to be. That's why I think worship is so important. It's an opportunity for us to get close to God. Some people come to worship service and they are engulfed by the presence of God. They get caught up in the singing and they pray and the groanings of their heart and their spirit is caught up in it and they worship God and they listen to the Word and they're fed and other people walk out the door and say, you know what, I bet the Methodists beat us to lunch today. I mean, two people who sit in the same room get totally different reactions. Some folks come to worship because that's what they're supposed to do. Other folks come to worship because they want to know God. And they want to understand the deep things of God. And they want to understand what it means to have fellowship with God. I will say this. Every worship experience, regardless of what's going on, you get as close to God in that worship experience as you want to. You get out of worship what you put in it. If you want a mountaintop experience, you can get it because I tell you, God's not playing hide-and-seek with us. God desires that we get to know Him. And it says on this mountaintop experience with these three disciples that He was transfigured before them. The word is metamorphosis. It means to change into another form. There was an outward change that expressed what was on the inside of Him. Now, we don't understand that unless we understand that that happens in the realm of nature. It happens with a caterpillar. Nothing impressive about a caterpillar, but you let that thing crawl in and weave a cocoon, and out comes a butterfly. Jesus had a metamorphosis on the Mount of Transfiguration. What was on the inside of him became evident on the outside of him. Now, he was a man, and the Scripture tells us he was a common man, and that nobody really thought anything about him about the way he looked on the outside. He was a carpenter, he was all God, and he was all man, and yet there was nothing spectacular about his outward appearance. So the Mount of Transfiguration was a revealing of who he really was. It was a transformation, a manifestation, 
And when you put the three accounts of the transfiguration from Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, you will find that his face shone, that his clothes radiated, and his countenance was altered. Something happened to Jesus. The glory of God was manifested in humanity. Why? That, that must have been a sight. Because you see, for almost 33 years, the glory was confined and contained within him. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, God let the glory break out of him. And what he was, all of God that he was on the inside, broke out for those disciples to see. Now Luke tells us they were taking a nap, so they must have been Baptist. Baptists are the only people I know that sleep through the glory of God. I mean, they were napping, but the glory came out. It could not be contained, and for a moment, they were able to get a glimpse of what it was going to be like when Jesus returned. Now, here's what's interesting about it. If Jesus had had sin in his life, if there had been one blemish or one flaw in his character, the glory of God would have killed him. He would have not been transformed. His countenance would not have changed. He'd have been dead. It was an affirmation that Christ was the sinless Son of God when he was transfigured on that mountain. By the way, that word transformed or transfigured is used two other times in the New Testament. One is in Romans chapter 12 where it says that be not conformed to this world but be transformed. Metamorphosis. A change from the inside out by the renewing of your mind. Paul uses it again in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And you know what that means? You take it in the life of Jesus and then you take the applications that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians and in Romans and it means simply this, when God saved you, he put His glory inside of you. And the purpose of your life is to let His glory come out of you. That when people see you and watch you, that your life is a witness to the glory of God. That there is something about you, that there is a presence about you, that there is an air about you, if you will, that the glory of God is breaking forth. And when people see us and listen to us and are around us, what they see is the glory of God being worked out of our life and revealed through our life. Now, that's some vision. But there are some visitors in verse 4. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Luke tells us that they were asleep, but these two were talking with Jesus, and that must have been some Bible conference. I go to Bible conferences sometimes, sit around, and, you know, uh, Doug, you know, the evangelism conference, I mean, you can roll BBs all around in there. Nobody, I tell you, probably you could bet on having a tough time getting a seat if Moses, Elijah, and Jesus showed up at a Bible conference. I wonder what they were talking about. Think they were comparing baptisms? Think they were handing out resumes? You think they were talking about the denomination? No. In fact, why Moses and Elijah? 
I mean, why not David? He was the man after God's own heart. Why not Abraham? He was the father of faith. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, I'm glad you asked. First reason is because they had both been to the mountain with God before. They had both been to the mountain with God before. Moses had been on Mount Sinai and seen the glory of God and had received the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 31. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 had been on Mount Horeb. Both of them had been on a mountain and met God before. So the reason that they are called and the reason they come to the mountain is because they've already been to a mountain with God. The second reason is because Moses and Elijah represent the entire Old Testament. In Moses, we have the representative of the law. In Elijah, we have the representative of the prophets. Moses was the founder of Israel's religious economy. Elijah was the one that restored Israel away from paganism and idol worship. And so Moses and Elijah sum up the law and the prophets, which both pointed to who? Jesus. Now, by the way, just a little side note. There's another reason why Moses and Elijah were there. Because they represent the only two ways people get to heaven. Moses was cradled in the arms of God and God dug a hole with his fingers and buried Moses and nobody knows where he is. Some people get to heaven through death. Elijah was caught up in a chariot. Some people are going to get to heaven through the rapture. And so the summation of everything that had ever pointed to Jesus Christ was in Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets, death or rapture, all of it. They're gathered together with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had come together and they were talking. Now, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 31, I want to show you what they were talking about. Luke chapter 9, verse 31. You ask a question, you get an answer. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus... Luke sums it up in one verse, Luke 9, 31. Who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What they were talking about was the cross. The path that Jesus was on, the suffering Messiah, the one who was coming to pay the price for sins. And Moses and Elijah, now, now listen, you've you got to follow this. All of us know this because we've had enough Old Testament maybe, but... Moses and Elijah were in heaven on credit. They believed the promise that God would send a Messiah. They looked forward to one they had not seen. They believed that there was going to be a Savior, a Messiah, who was going to pay the price for their sins. And they got to be with God because they believed in something they had not seen. They died before the cross. They were in heaven on credit. They were in the presence of God on credit, on the credit of the account of Jesus Christ. And here's what they were doing. When he says they were speaking of his departure, what they were doing is they were encouraging Jesus to go on to the cross. Wouldn't you if you were there on credit? 
You know what Moses was saying? Let's just use a little imagination. Moses was saying, Jesus, everything I wrote down about the law, all those Ten Commandments, the only person that's ever lived up to them is you. You have fulfilled all the law, every dot of every I, every crossing of every T. You have not violated the law of God. You go on to the cross. You're the fulfillment of the law. There's no stain on you. You are guiltless before the law. And Elijah stands there and says, that's right. And I'll tell you what else you've done. You are the fulfillment of every prophecy of every prophet that ever lived. You go on to the cross. You're it. You're him. It was the, the verdict of Moses and Elijah that he had fulfilled all the messianic prophecies that God in Christ Jesus was the consummation of every dream, every hope, and every desire those two men had ever had. And they were saying, God, Jesus, go on. Go to the cross. We know it's tough. We know what you're facing. You know what you're facing. But don't stop. For everything we have ever hoped for all our lives is wrapped up in you going all the way to Jerusalem and going to Calvary and being put in a barred tomb. Well, you would know at this point that Simon Peter would have to open his mouth. You know Simon Peter. He's the guy who always started his mouth before he cranked his brain. He comes up and, oh, Jesus. Oh, I tell you what, we need to build a worldwide evangelization center right here. It would be the Peter, James, and John Great Awakening Center. We could build it right here. And you and Moses and Elijah could come, and we could have conferences up here on top of this mountain, and it'd be wonderful. Oh, Peter, he just always seems to be putting his foot in his mouth. But you know, Jesus doesn't even respond to him, for there is a voice in verse 7, Then a cloud formed. He is interrupted by a cloud, and it overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. I like that. They looked up, and all they saw was Jesus. Now, the cloud formed. We've talked about that cloud this morning a little bit. The cloud was a sign and an external manifestation of the presence of God in the Old Testament. Let me just kind of go through the list with you. The cloud had led Israel through the wilderness. The cloud had passed over Moses and covered him in the book of Exodus in chapter 33. The cloud covered the nearly finished tent of meeting. The cloud filled the tabernacle in Exodus 40. The cloud came down upon the temple when sacrifices were made. The cloud filled Solomon's temple after it was built in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Ezekiel saw the cloud move from the threshold of the temple in Ezekiel chapter 8 through 10. And it is the same word when it says this cloud formed and overshadowed them. That is the exact same word in the Greek that was used for the Holy Spirit of God hovering over the Virgin Mary and bringing the life of Christ inside of a virgin. You see, God kind of moved in. Just as He had hovered over the people, just as He had hovered over the temple, He hovered over the Virgin Mary, and now we come to the transfiguration, and we come to this time, and He hovers over them. I tell you, that must have been a sight to see because nobody had seen the glory of God in 600 years. There were 400 dark years between Malachi and the time that Christ was born. And it was a desperate time in the life of Israel. 
And all of a sudden, the glory of God breaks out. And this represents the power of God and the presence of God. The atmosphere on that mountain was one of glory. And a voice spoke to them and said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Now, here's what, that ha what happened. With Moses and Elijah... Well, this had to be a great day for Jesus. With Moses and Elijah, he got the verdict of the past that he was on the right track. With the voice of his father and the cloud, he got the verdict of the present that he was on the right track. Time was spanned between Moses and the moment. And in that time span, in just a few short words, God said, This is my beloved son. You better listen to him. You better hear what he has to say. You better do what he tells you to do. Now, God had said that at his baptism. He comes now here and says it again. This is my son. Listen to him. You see, Jesus came to a world that didn't think they needed him. They had all their religion neatly packaged. They had everything all in a box. And he said, this is my son, listen to him. Peter said, who are we going to go to? Jesus, you're the one that has the words of life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes but the Father but by me. I tell you, sometimes we're like the Jews. We, we think we've got God all figured out. We've got Him all packaged. And God somewhere is in the sideline saying, Hey, listen to my son. Let the cloud, let the glory, let the power, let the presence of God fall on your life in such a way that the only voice you hear is my voice. The only one you see is my son. The only thing that matters to you is what I'm saying to you. Get caught up in me and in who I am. Now, there's a great illustration of this. In just a few months, Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem. And it will be the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And in the Feast of the Tabernacles, on the last night there was the lighting of the tabernacle. Now, here's how that happened. The illumination of the temple was done on four columns around the temple. They were placed huge bowls. Those columns were as high as the walls of the temple. And on the last night of the Feast of Tabernacles, young, strong priests would take 65 liters of oil, climb a ladder and go up that ladder to those bowls and fill those bowls with that oil. Then they would light the wick that sat in the center of that bowl. And historians say that the light from those four bowls of oil was so bright that it illuminated not only the temple but all of Jerusalem. It was as if it was daylight in the middle of darkness. The illumination of the city by the lighting of those four bowls, 65 liters of oil in each one. And that was the celebration. That was the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the illumination of the temple. And if you study the life of Christ in its context, the next day, after the day that the Feast of Tabernacles ended, Jesus Christ stood in the temple treasury 
And with those wicks still smoldering and smoke rising from them in the background over his shoulder, he stood on the steps of the temple treasury and said, Gentlemen, I am the light of the world. You know what he was saying? <laughs> he was saying, uh, remember that pillar of fire in the wilderness? That was me. Uh, you remember the glory that came on the tabernacle? Uh, that was me. You remember the glory that filled the temple of Solomon? Uh, that was me. You remember the glory that passed by Moses and he saw just a glimpse of it? Uh, that was me. Everything you celebrated last night in a symbol, you are looking at in reality today. I am the light of the world. I am the one that filled the temple with my glory. And when he did that, he signed his death certificate. We got a lot of lights. A lot of people trying to do this and do that, trying to make and create light. And we need to quit pouring oil into man-made lights and we need to look around at the charred remains of our empty celebrations and look to the one who said, gentlemen, ladies, young people, children, I'm the light of the world. Listen to me. Follow me. Obey me. And it says in verse 8 that all of a sudden they looked up and Moses and Elijah were gone. I mean, they didn't even get to get those guys to sign their Bibles. They were gone. And only Jesus remained. <laughs> you know why? Because he's the only one that God the Father wants you looking at. God did not call us to worship Moses or Elijah or any preacher or any event or any program. God wants to get us to the point where once we have seen the glory of God, the only thing we want to see from then on is Jesus alone. Only Jesus. That's all that matters. Just Him. When Dr. Havner lost his wife, He had people come up to him and say, well, I'm sorry, I'm, you lost your wife. He said, oh, I hadn't lost her. I know right where she is. And he made this statement. He said, it is one thing to say, Jesus is all I want until he's all you have. And only then do you find out he's all you ever really needed. Oh, Jesus is all I want. Oh, Lord, I just want to know you. But then one day he's going to be all you've got. Church is going to let you down. Preacher's going to let you down. Your family's going to let you down. And maybe finally in that moment of crisis, you and I are going to discover that he's all we ever really needed. We had crutches and things and stuff. And all the time, God's been trying to take us to a mountain so he can show us his glory 
and who He is and what He can do in our midst so that when we come off the mountain, the only thing that ever matters to us after that day is Jesus. I know that sounds simple. But folks, life is simple if you realize the only thing that matters is Jesus. If you're lost, the only thing that matters to you tonight, the only thing that will make a hill of beans worth of difference in your life is Jesus. If you're saved, the only thing that's going to get you through life is Jesus. That's it. I don't want to be simplistic, but I want to be very simple. That's it. And all the other things that we hope will bring glory and peace and joy and power and illumination to our lives, they're not going to bring it. Because God never intended those things to bring that to our life. God intended that you see one face, and that is the face of Jesus. God intended that you hear one voice, and that is the voice of Jesus. And God intended that you have one life-changing experience that lasts a lifetime, and that is your experience with Jesus. Anything less is settling for second best. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.